The Dalmatian Connection, by Norma King. Published in print 1980. Revised and produced by Lorraine Kelly for goldfieldstories.com. Chapter 5. The Lime Kilns. In 1934 Jean was working as a housemaid in a hostel in Fremantle when she received a letter from her brother Jack. He wanted to know if she would come out and cook for them. They were then working at a place called the Lime Kilns, out on the Goldfields Trans Line. The men had become tired of cooking for themselves. The men offered her the same wages as she was getting at the private house where she was working in Fremantle. Jean said she accepted because she thought it would be better being her own boss, but did not fully realize the primitive conditions she would be housekeeping under. Her fiancé, Mark Zuvela, was also there. It was the 24th of March 1933, when Jean Zuvela, then Jean Stryka, left Kalgoorlie on the eastbound transcontinental train and got off at the Naritha siding. Her brother, Frank, met her there and drove her the 17-kilometer journey to her new home in the company's T-model Ford truck. She said her first thought when she got there was, what have I let myself in for? However, it was the beginning of her 33-year involvement with a unique and isolated community. Her new home consisted of three rooms, a kitchen and two bedrooms. There was an open area between the two bedrooms, which was later roofed over and protected from the weather with a curtain made of bags sewn together. This could be rolled up during the hot weather. Three of her boarders slept in one bedroom while the fourth camped nearby. Jean's bedroom had been specially built for her. It was sparsely furnished with a Coolgardy stretcher, a Kapok mattress and a cupboard made of two or three stacked boxes. The kitchen was also sparsely furnished. It contained a newly installed number one metters wood stove, a bench, a table and a few boxes they used as chairs. Jean said, I never even had a cooler or a safe when I first went there. Mark made me one later out of some three by four wood and fracture boxes. It was a square safe, and the fracture boxes were put on the top of the bit of wood across the middle parts, where I could lean plates and hang cups on cup hooks. That was my kitchenette and safe. I put two rows of four stacked Jera fruit boxes together and hung a curtain in front. That was my cupboard for tinned stuff. Anything in packets I put in screw top jars that I had picked up in the bush. These had been thrown out by some of the men there who batched. When I first arrived Mr. and Mrs. Kesey were there with her two brothers. They were working there. Someone told me that before I came there was another chap working there by the name of Mr. Bosselman. He was a fireman and came from Spearwood. There were others too, but most of them had left by the time I got there. Jean didn't do any washing or ironing in her last job but because I thought the sun shone out of my brothers. She did their washing and her fiancé's too. Mark made a bench outside for her to put her washing tubs on. She had a couple of tubs and a washboard, a tin washboard at first and then a glass one. The bench was underneath a big mulga tree. I used the water out of my drum. I carried the water over in buckets made out of kerosene tins and boiled the clothes in another kerosene tin. The settlement had come into being in 1930-31 when Charles and George Kesey had discovered some good surface limestone a few miles west of the Naritha siding, which is roughly 360 kilometers east of Kalgoorlie. They had also found a belt of timber in the vicinity, and as wood was needed to burn the limestone, the brothers had set up their kilns nearby. The kilns were also conveniently situated near the railway line so that the finished product could be railed from there. This siding became known as either Lime Siding or the 913 Mile, 913 miles from Port Augusta. Earlier, the German-born Kesey brothers had been burning lime in the South Fremantle-Spearwood area, and had brought some of their experienced workforce with them. These men erected their kilns at the 913 mile with especially fired bricks from Clackline. Lime is a necessary part of the gold extraction process, and until 1965, the Kesey brothers supplied the gold mines in Kalgoorlie with an average of 500 to 700 bags of lime a week. For a few years, they also supplied lime to the government railways for their water purifying plant at Rolina. 
The lime helped remove impurities from the mineralized underground water that was used in the steam trains, which were running at the time. During those depression years Jean and the three other women, and dozen or so men who were in the settlement at that time, quickly learned to improvise. Later on, the number of men employed at the kilns increased to about 22 and some came with their wives. In the earlier years the nationalities of the men were Yugoslav, Italian, English, Australian, Irish and Dutch. Jean said. There were mostly Yugoslavs working there towards the end. I am of Yugoslav descent myself. Ralph Tabin, the man who was later the best man at our wedding, got my future husband the job out there. They had come from the same village in Yugoslavia. After Ralph left the lime kilns he went back to Yugoslavia and later died there. While Jean could understand the Slav language it was not until the 1970s that she learned to speak it herself. This was after her husband's nephew arrived from Yugoslavia and she was helping him with his English correspondence lessons. His name was also Mark. The morning after her arrival, Jean went outside and looked at her surroundings in the daylight. She saw ten or so buildings scattered around, and, further over near the railway line, three lime kilns and some heaps of lime ash. The men were already at work near the kilns breaking up big chunks of limestone with heavy sledgehammers. This method of breaking the stone did not change for many years. After a visit to the lime kilns in 1965, a journalist named Jim Magnus wrote, Strangers, seeing a team of men with sledgehammers pounding at great heaps of limestone, could be excused for thinking they had come on a relic of the convict days, with only the leg irons missing. The buildings in the settlement, like the one Jean had come to, had walls of filter cloth or bags sewn together. Most were roofed with corrugated iron and the others with flattened kerosene tins. Some dirt floors were covered with a type of cement, made from a mixture of water and lime residues, while others had the dirt covered with old wooden railway sleepers. Water for the whole settlement was purchased in Kalgoorlie by the company and brought in by train. The tanks were offloaded at the siding and taken by truck to the various homes where the water was siphoned out into 44-gallon drums or tanks. Each householder paid for the water they used. There was no local supply except for the rare times when it rained, and when there was enough rain to fill a nearby creek. Then someone would go down in a truck with a tank on the back and siphon the water into the tank. Jean soon discovered that housekeeping at the lime kilns was a lot different to what she had been used to in the city. Her stores were brought out from Kalgoorlie on the tea and sugar train, this carried foodstuffs and everything else that could be bought in shops. Everything had to be ordered in advance. After one occasion, when there was heavy rain in their homes and the railway lines became flooded, and the wet lime had become slack in the kilns, she learned that she must always have a good supply of flour, potatoes, onions and tinned food in stock. This flood also decided their agent to send them a battery-operated two-way radio, connected to the flying doctor frequency. We use car batteries to charge the radio and recharge them from the truck. We didn't have to pedal or anything. We had a wireless radio, and we had to have a 6-volt battery, besides those big dry batteries, to charge that. Then we got the Trigger battery. That was a lot better. This lead-zinc battery was invented by Alfred Trigger. When Jean first arrived there she kept the butter in a jar wrapped in a wet cloth, placed the jar in an old cut-down water bag with some water in the bottom and hung the bag wherever it would catch a breeze. The men kept their cases of beer cool, by digging a hole deep enough to hold the case, and then covering it over with dirt. Later, the company supplied two kerosene refrigerators for the whole settlement. Jean's kitchen was in a breezeway between the bedrooms. A curtain made of bags with some wood at the bottom was rolled up to let a cool breeze come through in the summer, and let down in winter to help keep the kitchen warm. Each camp had an outdoor lavatory with a pan underneath, and there was a little container of lime, which the occupant scooped in to neutralize the odor. Lime dust was also used to keep the ants away. It was sprinkled around the legs of tables and any other place that attracted ants. Jean said. When I was first there, keeping the meat was a real problem. 
Someone gave me a meat safe and I hung it up on a hook because we had a lot of wild cats out there. The first time I used it I put some meat in it and took out what I wanted and cooked that. I left the rest there and a day or two later I could smell this awful smell. A neighbor came in and told me it was coming from my meat safe. The meat had gone bad. I found out I had to cook the meat straight after it arrived. I had a few more boarders after I was married and in the summer all you could get was mutton, not lamb, only mutton. They carried live sheep on the tea and sugar train and killed them as they went along. More often than not, when we got the meat, the sheep had not long been killed and the meat was all floppy. It used to be kind of tough. They carried beef only in the winter time. Later, when they got those refrigerated vans you could get pork, beef and all. Jean said she always seemed to be cooking. Because I lived so close to where the men were working, the men called in before they started work at 7 or half past 7 to have a cup of coffee and a piece of toast. Their smoko time was really breakfast time. At 9 or half past I had their breakfast cooked and ready to put on the table as soon as they walked in the door and that was no sooner finished than it was time to prepare their lunch. They knocked off work from 12 until 1 o'clock. My mother used to say, she never saw such a place, it was nothing but meals. Jean also needed to dust a lot, especially when the south wind stirred up the grey-white dust and blew it over everything. She said that sometimes the men got burnt with the lime. Some washed themselves with vinegar but they still looked as though they had been powdered. They then found out that olive oil neutralized the lime and after work they would dust themselves down, rub oil around their eyes, face and expose part of their body, and then have a warm wash or a bush shower. This would get rid of the lime dust. Jean and Mark were married in Spearwood on May 12, 1934. They were married in the first Catholic church there. It was blessed when Archbishop Cooney was the Archbishop. When he died Archbishop Goody took over. He had been in a monastery somewhere in Yugoslavia and could speak the language. On one occasion he spoke the whole mass in the Yugoslav language. There was one old woman in the church and she was crying as she never thought she would hear mass in her tongue again. The majority of people who attended the Catholic church there were Yugoslavs. Jean said. We had the wedding breakfast in my mum's house. There were about 20 people there. There was a Methodist church and a parish church in Spearwood, and in the hall at the parish church, we used to have dances every Saturday night. They gave me a kitchen tea there before we got married, and after the wedding breakfast we all went on to the hall for a dance. Those who usually went to the Saturday night dances went along too. It was really lovely. At these Saturday night dances some older people made cakes and sandwiches, and we had supper there. The couple returned to the lime kilns after their honeymoon and lived there until 1935. Mark left to work on the Kurawang woodline. He and Jean were there for a year. They lived in a tent and Jean did her cooking in a camp oven. There were other Italian and Slav women in the main camp. I was there for three months and for the other nine months I was out where the men were, and I was by myself for most of the day. The men were cutting wood for the train and others would be cutting timber wood for the mines. While I was living in the first camp I planted some lettuce seeds, and not long afterwards we moved to the other camp. One day I said to my husband that I was going back to the first camp to see if my lettuces had come up. I followed the truck's tire marks to go back and found that the lettuce had grown quite high. I took some back with me. One fellow, who came from the same village as Mark, would come out in a truck to pick up the wood there and sometimes I would cook a meal and go back in the truck and give Mark the meal. I had my meal with him and afterwards I would walk home. I had a dog for company. Weekends we used to play cards. We played bluff poker a lot until 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. We had a kerosene tin and put hot coals in and put it under the table to keep our feet warm. I got unwell with the men. I never had any trouble with them. You know there was a man called Mr. Starkovich, he had been in Australia for years and years. 
He had made this little wireless, like a little crystal thing and it was in a small Pasha coffee tin. There was the picture of a Turkish man on the tin called Pasha. That little thing was a wireless and you could put it to your ear and hear music or something. I don't know how he did it. I am scared stiff of storms because one day when I was eight years old, I saw a big Jarrah tree struck by lightning and fall down and it scared the devil out of me. I have been the same ever since. When I was out in the bush and my husband was night fireman, and whenever there was a storm, my husband would come home because he knew how scared I am when I am on my own. There was this lady in the main camp who was living with an Italian and who was one of them girls. Friends of my husband told us that we must not be seen talking to her or we would get a bad name. If she spoke to me I spoke to her. There were just us two living down at one end of the camp, and one day when there was thunder and lightning I went down to her. She said to me that people didn't know what it was like being a prostitute or they would never go there. She was married with kitties and her husband had left her, and she said she was forced to do it. It was no business of mine what she did with her life. There was a lot of sly grogging going on there. There was one family who had chooks, someone told me they had a box of beer dug in the yard, and when someone wanted beer the woman would take a bucket up to the chookyard as if she was going to feed the chooks, and bring back some beer. The men would go to her and her husband's place to play cards. It was somewhere for the bachelors to go. One of the friends of my husband got caught by the police. He was sitting there with a glass of beer in front of him and couldn't get rid of it, he had to go to court. The company then asked Mark to help build a fifth kiln so the couple returned to the 913 mile. As their old home had been occupied while they were away, the Zuvalis moved into a better house. She made a very interesting discovery in one of the houses that had once been occupied by a man called Bernie. This was a book, it was very small with a black leather cover. Jean opened it and saw that a nurse, Sister C. Fitzpatrick, had written it. She had written it in pencil and some of the writing was rather faded. Jean was intrigued with what she had found and as she loved reading, sat down and read the diary at her first opportunity. End of chapter 5